Hey everyone, welcome back to the land of Robservations. I am Rob Liefeld. This is my joint that we uh, share where we talk comics and pop culture and um, mostly comics and pop culture and everything that I have loved and consumed uh, since my uh, childhood that, that saw me uh, create a lifelong addiction to comic books. And we have Shared many times, I, I'll remind you, I started this journey in 1974, 75. That's when I started really getting into comic books, buying them, uh, discovering that every 30 days a comic book was going to arrive on my spinner rack at the liquor store, the 7-Eleven, the market. It created my habit, my lawn mowing money, my allowances. I would pinch the uh, food money that I was given for hot lunches. There, there is no lengths I would not go to make sure that I had money for my comic book addiction, which was like as powerful as anything I have ever encountered. It took me all the way into a career in comic books where I have made um, comics for the last 34 years. Uh, Cable, X-Force, Deadpool, Domino, uh, Started Image Comics with my, my brothers, uh, you know, Youngblood Brigade, best-selling Captain America run, Avengers, Rejects. Uh, fighting American, so many. Uh, we, we, it's just been a, a, a just a fantastic journey, and, and we are still in a fan point of view, a, a fan fan's eye view, because that's how I recall so much of this and, and what I still carry with me. And today we are going to tackle maybe the greatest subject that we could ever tackle. I don't know what what took me so long, but this is going to be a great. Uh, hour that we're going to spend together talking about none other than the king of comics, the king of the comic books, the king of comic book world universe, Jack Kirby. Jack the king Kirby. Jack the damn king Kirby. Okay? This man is a mountain all himself. He is easily on my Mount Rushmore. We covered this don't give me that Mount Rushmore political crap right now. I am talking about Mount Rushmore as it has always been. The idea that we put the greats on the mountain. He deserves his own. He he's he, he deserves his own monument. The fact that Jack passed away so young in, uh, in 1994 is the reason that uh, so many of you don't know who he is. Because had he lived, he would have most certainly told you who he was. He was very proud of of the work that he did, and oh boy, did he do the work. This man did the work. He did all the work. He he did so much work that that like you could build furniture out of the volumes of work that he did. Uh, obviously, prior to Marvel Comics and the existence of of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, Jack created along with his co-conspirators Joe Simon. Joe Simon and Jack Kirby created Captain America, one of the oldest, mightiest, most powerful icons in pop culture, was created, designed, illustrated, brought to life through this man's pencil, his amazing storytelling. Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, Captain America, Bucky, the battle against Hitler, the infamous cover with Captain America punching out Hitler, punching the Nazis, the Razzis. That is, to me, one of Jack's greatest signature accomplishments. Captain America is such a perfect design, and it just gives you a glimpse of all that is to come with this amazing, once-in-a-lifetime, never-to-be-repeated 
uh, talent. I mean, people can get into arguments in sports over Michael Jordan, LeBron, Kobe, Magic, right? Larry Bird. In, in comics, there is no, there's nobody that can touch uh, Jack. There, there's no, there's no guy to to put in a conversation with. Well, what about this guy? He, he is. It, it's 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 like there there is no second place. Jack has contributed so much to the comics industry through his storytelling, his designs, his amazing illustrations. He is a magnificent talent that that I would put up alongside the Walt Disney's, the Spielberg's, the George Lucas's, the J.R.R. Tolkien's of our history. He is one in a million and does not get, I don't think he will ever receive the people who love Jack and, and, and know Jack and uh, adore the work and, and, and the magnificence of what he contributed. We all understand that he will never get his complete due because, as I said, he died of heart failure in February of 1994, walking outside to get his newspaper uh, in, in, in the beautiful neighborhood that he lived, uh, beautiful Thousand Oaks. Uh, we're going to get to uh, being at his home alongside him as this progresses. I was honored to know Jack. Uh, he was fiery. He had passion. He didn't take gruff from anybody. He married a beautiful uh, woman named Rosalind. Roz Kirby was every bit as tough and awesome and spectacular and at his side as, as Jack was. But my first encounters with Jack Kirby, obviously, were not Captain America number one. I'd encountered that very early in my comic book collecting because you couldn't escape it. I mean, it's the imagery. It's the this iconoclastic in, in, you know, imagery of Cap punching Hitler. But he was coming back to Marvel after a detour that he spent with DC Comics where he had contributed the New Gods, created Darkseid, Orion, Big Barda, Mr. Miracle, the Forever People, Light Ray, Commandy, Omac. I mean, this guy was on a tear at DC. I think all those books were 100% ahead of their time. I came in contact with him as he was leaving, as he was exiting the stage at DC Comics because at my barber shop that had introduced me to my very first Marvel comic book at my barbershop, they also had a copy of OMAC number one. It was a beat up copy that had been in the stack for a long time, but if you crack open OMAC number one and you, you know, meet Buddy Blank and you meet the Body Banks and you meet this amazing transformation that he goes through named OMAC. Uh, OMAC stands for One Man Army Corps. It's right there on the cover. One Man Army Corps. And I'm going to tell you to this day, that blew me away. I was One Man Army Corps. Just OMAC. It had a great sound to it. And that's what Jack did so well. He just, OMAC. He probably just made that up as he was drawing the character. I mean, they just, these concepts and these names, they just fell off of him. They, they, they fell off of him. He had so much. He just, his brain would open and a couple would fall on the desk and he would just go to work. Now, the backstory, interestingly, of OMAC is that OMAC was going to be a future Captain America in a future Captain America story. And there is a bit of a, OMAC is a little bit of a super soldier with a little bit of a Shazam element. Boy turns into man. Um, boy submits himself to procedure, becomes 
glorious superhuman. So it's a little bit of the Shazam boy to man concept and the Steve Rogers scrawny person to mighty muscular, you know, unstoppable super soldier. And he is in the far flung future battling the craziest villains, the imagination on display. Imagine OMAC number one being your first exposure to Jack Kirby that the, there's heads on top of cubes and in the cubes you can see folded up legs and separated arms and these were like you know people packed away in cubes that they'd unfold and you'd slip on that would be your body i mean the, the body banks alone were just this phenomenal concept uh in the future but the council you know deems uh buddy banks worthy to you know become the one-man army corps and he's transformed and i never look back as far as adoring that character as a giant mohawk, he's in orange and blue. He has silver gauntlets. He's just visually just like, give me more of this guy. I love Omac. I love everyone's depiction of Omac, but my favorite Omac is Jack Kirby. You're like, I've never heard of Omac. Someday you will. There is no doubt in my mind that someday you will. That was uh, the end of his tenure at, at DC because after the New Gods uh, failed to completely launch in the spectacular fashion that it should have, because, again, if you grab any of the New Gods comic books or the compilations, you will see costume designs, worlds, characters, splash pages, action sequences that are 100% ahead of its time. But it just wasn't its time. So New Gods and Mr. Miracle and Forever People didn't take in the way that DC had hoped. So they asked him, well, let's give us round two. And round two was Commandy the Demon. Commandy is separate, the last boy on Earth, very much in the in the uh, Planet of the Apes mode, and then the Demon, which is this awesome supernatural, uh, uh, you know, Merlin the Magician, this demon uh, from Arthurian legend, modern day, uh, really amazing, beautiful comic. But Commandy and Omak I favored over the de over Demon, even though Demon is beautifully illustrated. It's just a beautiful comic book. But Commandy ran the longest and uh, double anything else he did at DC. And OMAC had a quick demise. It didn't take, not enough kids felt about OMAC the way that I did. But he is on his way back in 1975 to be re-embraced again by Marvel after being gone for five years. They warmly re-embraced Jack to the tune of, there was a period from 1976 to 1978 that Jack must have been doing 10 covers a month from them. So your Defenders comic had a Jack Kirby cover on it. Some of my favorite Avengers comics had a Jack Kirby cover on it. Fantastic Four, you know, a, a, a book that he's responsible for, had Jack Kirby co covers on it. The books that he was launching, he took over Captain America. He launched Black Panther, uh, you know, took over, put Black Panther in his own book, took the helm again, a character that he created. So Black Panther and Captain America, he's reunited with them. He's obviously doing those covers. Later on, he does Machine Man. He does Devil Dinosaur. Uh, this guy is just unstoppable. The Eternals, which we talk about. The Eternals is this magnificent secret race of immortals, space immortals that have been living amongst humans for all this time. Very much to me a continuation of all the work that he did in the fourth world and kind of this in, invisible, um, undisclosed connection that he brings over to Marvel where now we meet Icarus and Circe and all of the wonderful Eternals characters. But the first thing he does, man, is he adapts Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. So think of this. One of the master visualists, directors, 
uh, I mean, just everyone knows Kubrick is, was, always shall be held as a masterful genius. He does this incredible state-of-the-art, pushes the envelope, special effects uh, in, in every possible way. Just super smart, brilliant, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Takes the world by storm. Jack Kirby does the Treasury Edition movie adaptation. Jack Kirby drawn Stanley Kubrick, and I got to tell you, man, it's it's magnificent. And not only that, they then make 2001 A Space Odyssey into a monthly comic book for Marvel for several issues. Um, I have issues four and five in front of me, and they're they're killer. I mean, Jack is crushing it again. He's going, okay, I, I've got these Kubrick visuals, and I'm going to build my Jack Kirby dynamic on top of that and my aesthetic. And Jack Kirby's aesthetic was so brilliant because you couldn't put it in a box. This is the man that gave us Galactus, his incredible visual design, that headdress, that armor. All of the Asgardians, Lady Sif, Thor, Loki, Odin. If you have not seen some of Odin's headdresses and ornate helmets that he wore during the seminal run that Jack did on Thor, you're, you're, I mean, you're missing out. This stuff is, you will stare at it and, and it works, but it shouldn't work, but they are designs and objects that are going in every other direction. Gila. You know, some of these guys in the Marvel films, I love them. They're, they're, they're wonderful guys. I see them put up these designs where they go, hey, I designed Gila for Ragnarok. No, you didn't. Jack Kirby designed that. You're just adapting from Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby designed that, um, that particular a magnificent look that Kate Blanchett is adorned in, in Thor Ragnarok. And the reason it is so magnificent, it is it is head to toe a Jack Kirby creation. So much of Ragnarok is pure Jack Kirby visual inspiration. You know, um, one of the designers uh, who worked for Blue, Blur Studios, Blur Studios who did the Deadpool movie, Tim Miller owns Blur Studios and he directed Deadpool in 2016. Uh, one of the head guys, the designer, when I was there came over and said, hey Rob, I want to show you this adaptation of Deadpool I did for the the movie costume. I, I wanted to, you know, wanted to see what you thought. And he eventually gave me a giant size poster size printout of this. And it's it's so fun to see. Um, I, I was so excited to to look at it. But the bottom line is he came over and he's like, hey Rob, I, I did this based on on your work. And 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 again, time and again, I don't think that these guys are giving enough um credit. Jack is dead. He can't stand up and, and do an interview and say, hey, man, I designed that. So if you're going to say that you designed something, um, no, say I developed this from Jack Kirby's state-of-the-art, never-to-be-imitated, uh, uh, you know, transformational costume designs. You know, for, if the guy who did Deadpool can do that to me, you can give Kirby his due. So many of those costumes that you're seeing in these Marvel films, from Iron Man's armor to Captain America's amazing visuals, to Thor's amazing costume. Um, these are all Jack Kirby, you know, illustrations, designs, state of the art. They, they, they don't blend together. They don't, they don't look alike. The Eternals, again, I'm very excited to see where they go with the Eternals because the visual language that he brought to the Eternals, I've covered this in, in one of the earlier Eternals themed episodes, but uh, the, the thing is that there was a lot of alien civilization uh, stuff going on in the mid 70s and it was it took the culture by storm and it was you know were the inca indians visited by you know by 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 
aliens and and were were ancient Mexican pyramids um, influenced by the aliens? Were, were were they of those you know were, were those of, of of an alien design? Jack took that. He took the Inca, the the Spanish Mexican influences, and he blended them into these new costumes that you're like, oh, cool! I see this classic, you know, uh, these these other civilizations implemented through Jack's lens because he wanted to tie his alien uh, conspiracies and theories and some of the, the 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 tapestry that he was creating. He's tapping into what was in the culture at the time, which was you know the Mexican pyramids were helped. To, they were constructed by aliens. So he's taken so much of that and he blends it and, and you go, these Eternals designs are like nothing I've ever seen. Just like the new gods were like nothing I've ever seen. You know, just like Doctor Doom and the Fantastic Four are like, were like nothing I'd ever seen. Jack Kirby comes back to Marvel. He does 2001 A Space Odyssey. We are entering in 1976 the Bicentennial. I've touched on this before. It was a big deal in the United States of America. The Bicentennial, 1976, you know, 1776 to 1976. It was painted on the giant dams, on the freeway. It was billboards. It was coins. They changed the money. The coins reflected the centennial. The the, the dollar bills were, were changed and, and had the centennial um, imprimatur put on top of them. And so Jack is perfect for Captain America during the Bicentennial. He does an independently, like, not reprinted, a brand new independent Captain America Bicentennial Adventure that is one of one of those treasury editions I've spoken of with so much favor. It is this giant, like, cap through the ages. There's a World War II story. There's, like, imagery of him in, in the Wild West, you know, alongside Revolutionary War heroes. I mean, it is all over the place. It is magnificent. It's him with Abe Lincoln. Kirby just goes to town on this. And it is so powerful, and it is one of those, again, so big and bold treasury editions that he is doing alongside his return to the monthly formatted Captain America that comes out and continues the run. He jumps on. He jumps on in time for the 200th issue of Captain America. You know, so you've got a double. You've got the 1976 to, you know, uh, 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 bicentennial imagery celebration, and then you've got him celebrating anniversary issues in Captain America. And he takes over, and that book immediately rediscovers a punch that it had been lacking. It was a book that was doing okay. They were wrapping up a very political storyline that found Cap giving up his identity. Um, Steve Rogers donned a new, darker identity called Nomad. A young, untested kid took over the, uh, the, the form and the costume of Captain America and got his butt whooped, and uh, so, so eventually Nomad, Steve Rogers, you know, because he was turning his back on America, it was 1970s, Vietnam War, Nixon, he rejected all of it, it was a very political book, it was entertaining to a certain point, but it was kind of preachy a little, but it was, it was cool preachy, but still a little preachy, and then Jack comes on and goes, here, let me turn your, you know, head uh, upside down, and, and Jack gave us all these cool, new, amazing adventures, and they, they, Captain America and the Falcon and these giant, magnificent um, new adventures of Cap. And again, the way Jack told a story, he was just, at this point, he was just emboldened. He knew exactly what he wanted to do and how to pull it off. And every page, every book 
had a splash page, and then it was followed immediately by a double splash page. And then you'd probably get another two splash pages inside the issue because that's just how Jack wanted to roll. And then six, four panel pages in the middle, but then always finding its way back to some gigantic, major, kick-ass imagery because Jack knew that he, he knew that you wanted to be rocked in your socks by the comic books that he was producing. And nobody did them better than Jack. They were bold. They were, they were, they were um, just action-packed, dynamic. These gigantic battles, fisticuffs. I mean, his his uh, his his fight scenes are are still. I aspire myself, and I know so many of my peers aspire to Matt to 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 generate the same excitement his visuals, um, you know, would generate in 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 Captain America and the Falcon. Uh, Issue one, let me see what, what issue this is. This is issue 208. Issue 208. River of Death. This giant, the splash page is Cap walking over this swamp water, and there's this creepy red creature peering out over the rocks. And then what happens on the double page spread? I wish I could share this with you. Um, literally, Marvel just printed in a like 12 by 18 format hardcover. Kirby returns with excerpts of all his 1977, his 1975 to 1979 work when he returned the entire body's work. Three issues of Cap, three issues of Devil Dinosaur, three issues of Black Panther. And, and this thing is, is a, it just, it's so heavy. It's so heavy to pick up, but the imagery is incredible. It's exactly how it was intended. It's, it's like a supersized treasury edition. And this giant red creature from the swamp is just throttling Cap with a punch. Uh, to the face, pulling his arm behind him, and Cap is just feeling it. And of course, what happens afterwards? You know, Cap and this thing are doing a giant battle in the swamp. They're trading blows, tossing each other into trees. Um, and then later, like, some weird, you know, villainous uh, uh, army ascends upon them. And what, what what's Cap doing? He's blasting them with his shield. Giant, you know, kicking ten guys off of him. This is what Jack excelled at. Cap was a giant action hero. And nobody depicted him better than the man who created him. And in Captain America's, in, in, in Jack Kirby with Captain America reunited, Cap in Jack's hands is just the boldest, most um, eye-popping visuals. And, and Arnim Zola, who's a weird guy with a, with a head in the middle of his chest, you know, J Jack is depicting that. He is, uh, he is just teeing off on these pages and every issue was just bold. He, he knew how to make just Cap stand out with that red, white, and blue. He knew how to throw that, throw, throw that shield like nobody's business, like nobody's business. So Cap was reignited, dynamic, no more political, you know, uh, Nixon, Watergate, Vietnam commentary. This is just Cap battling bad guys, battling armies alongside, you know, uh, the Falcon and 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 one of his covers, uh, we've talked about comic book merchandise. Suddenly, in every drugstore, in every five and dime store, that's what my, my my mom would call them, the five and dime store. Um, just you know what we know today as CVS, but but those used to be you know there was one I went to called Rexel Rexel Drugstore, and they had peaches. Peaches are folders that we would buy before the school year. So right now, if I was in 1976, if I was showing up. To get my school supplies, I would see all these different notebooks and folders to put my 
to put my papers in, Marvel had licensed a bunch of their comic book covers. One of them was a Jack Kirby cover from this run that I'm talking about in 1976 called Captain America and the Falcon, the Mad Bomb. Mad Bomb. Jack is drawing Cap just in full action mode, coming at you full figure, just fills up the cover. Everyone's screaming down below him. He's kind of jumping in the air towards you. Falcon's there. But that was a peachy folder. And they would always take some panels from the comics. So you'd get two panels on each side slot inside the folder. But Jack's imagery was everywhere. At the same time, he takes over Black Panther. He comes back. He flexes. He he just shows off the technological advances of Wakanda. So much of what you see in the Black Panther movie with with all of the technological, you know, advancement and evolution that Wakanda has greater than ours is a byproduct of Jack's imagination. Nobody created machinery and coils and pillars and tech like like Jack. He just he just it was a personal signature style and when I see it ad- adapted on film and the guy who's done it the best so far is Taika Waititi in Ragnarok. So much of just everything to do with the planet that uh, that Thor and Hulk were on, and and the Grandmaster was so much visually, you know, uh, in, influenced and informed by Jack's illustrations. So he's doing Captain America, he's doing Black Panther, uh, he's doing 2001: A Space Odyssey. At no point in his history did he do less than 60 pages a month. The guy did uh, about 66 plus covers. That'd be that'd be 69 pages a month. And then all the extra covers, the Defenders covers, the Avengers covers, the Champions covers. These editors, it's like these new editors that had come into power while he was gone at DC Comics. They craved the idea that they could interact with Jack. Jack had left. He had become a, you know, a, a in partnership with DC Comics, away from Marvel. But, you know, that was kind of at the middle of the Roy Thomas regime. He comes back where Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Len Wein, these guys are these um, writer-editors. They each had a pocket of titles that they would produce and edit and answer to the publisher. You know, so so Jerry Conway had a certain amount of books that he did. Marv Wolfman had a certain amount of books. And when Jim Shooter came into power, he said, we're done with that. We're not doing this writer-editor stuff. This is why, you know, our books are missing their their deadlines is because these writer-editors aren't in a position to keep themselves accountable. And there's some truth in, in the, the truth, you know, is in the results. A lot of the books were being late. Shooter came up, came into power and got all the trains to run on time again. And, you know, I think all these guys from Shooter to Wolfman to Conway to Ween, they wanted to work with Jack. So they assigned him. I mean, Jack was doing Ghost Rider covers. If you've never seen them, they're magnificent. Jack Kirby does Ghost Rider. I think it's only three or four covers inked by Al Milgram, I believe. But they are fantastic. Again, bold. Industry. Jack could do covers with the best of them. There are these Avengers covers just over my shoulder. Avengers 153, Avengers 154, Wizard. You know, this character named the Wizard, the, the, uh, 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 a super speedster, a, a Marvel version of the Flash, but, can't, but, but predates him in the World War II era, is zipping around Iron Man, Captain America. They're all trying to catch him. It's so powerful. Another one has a tumor, uh, uh, A-T-T-U-M-A. I'm not saying a tumor, uh, like, like Arnold. It's a tumor. No, a tumor. A-T-T-U-M-A is an underwater villain created by Jack back on his Fantastic Four run, a, a nemesis of, of Prince Namor, Submariner. 
He is taking on the Avengers. He's holding them, uh, you know, in his in his in his throngs. He's he's got them in his grasp, and and there's Avengers heads overhead, the floating heads that Jack would do so well. Cap, Wonder Man, Scarlet Witch, and Iron Man are all floating heads of on top of the imagery. So they're kind of commenting on what's below. It's a classic comic book trope. It's it's so great. Um, it, it's always fun to see it, and nobody did it better and with more style and with more panache than Mr. Jack the King Kirby. So he had so many of these uh, amazing covers that he was knocking out while he was doing 69 pages a month. And again, when you'd ask Jack, Jack, why did you do 69 pages a month? Jack would be like, I had to pay the rent, kid. I had to pay the rent. And you know what? It, when he said that to me in 1990, it just struck me. You know, I don't know if he's getting $15 a page, $20 a page, $30 a page, $40 a page. But if he does three, $3, if he does three pages a day, you know, he's making at $40 a page. Let's say it was $40 a page. He's making $120 a day. If he's doing that six days a week and then he's doing that four weeks, you know, four weeks Every month, he can he, he's, he's making a good living in comics, as good as was available at the time. Now, Jack would exit after this and go into the world of animation and be behind some of your favorite Saturday morning cartoons. Thundar the Barbarian, which came out in the early 80s, was a just my favorite cartoon, was a standby immediate classic again combining elements of commandy with planet of the apes with conan um star wars oh it was it's phenomenal and that's a product of jack teaming up with alex toth but jack would also work on a ton of the marvel um cartoons that hit around the same time there was a fantastic four cartoon some of you guys may remember it had herbie the robot they didn't have the human torch there's all sorts of you know myths and legends as to why the human torch wasn't on the cartoon and it was weird. You're like, Jack Kirby, these character designs, the, the cartoons move like Jack. He's clearly on the animation team. He's doing the storyboards. I, I bought some of those storyboards recently that Jack did for an episode with Dr. Doom. And he was hands-on. So whether it was Thundar, whether it was Fantasy Four, he would eventually go to animation. But during this time at Marvel, three pages a day minimum. Then all the covers. And let's say the covers were paying him $120 a page because they paid more for covers, right? So the guy knew how to you know, provide for his family. Jack had a family. He lo relocated to Thousand Oaks, California in the during the DC period. He got out of New York and relocated and made a beautiful life for himself, having seen the house that he lived in, having stood on the, uh, you know, edge of his property line and looking out up high above the hills down upon Southern California. He had a great view. He had a just killer view. It's why you moved to California, high up in the hills spectacular beautiful beautiful pool really beautiful backyard but what was so killer was the amazing view of the mountains and southern california the city of los angeles below him he provided for his family and he did it through um a quantity of work that you never ever ever and this is the other thing you can say rob 60 pages man so some of those may have been inconsistent not at all same line weights detail he never phoned it in he didn't take a page off every page looks exactly the amount of detail as the page that preceded it whether it was the eternals captain america black panther 2001 they all look the same they all had this threshold of quality 
He never took a page off. He always delivered. Now in the 70s, he's doing battle at the time with, with all the new kids on the block. John Byrne is arriving. John George Perez is taking, you know, taking power. Jim Starlin has happened. Frank Miller is coming. But still, Jack was undeterred. He His pages were as powerful and as well laid out and the blocking and the storytelling. He is a master director on page. Nobody did it better. There is not a shot that you ever go. He didn't hit that shot right. I learned so much from storytelling, about storytelling, from studying Jack Kirby, uh, uh, partner in image with me, Jim Valentino. We shared a studio for a brief period of time. And he said, Rob, you're trying to tell, tell the story in too many panels. You're doing this because you see that George Perez do it and you're trying to emulate George Perez, but that's something that George does specifically for himself. You should look at the economy of storytelling that Jack Kirby provides. Look at this in four panels and six panels. He gives you all the information. You're trying to do 10 panels on a page. And in my early work, I was indeed doing exactly that. And he said, Rob, you can do it more conscientiously with what you're putting on the page in the panel and, and pick, make better choices and do it with an economy of storytelling and make the panels and the, and, and, and each page more powerful as a result. You're, you're trying to fit a storytelling style that you're not, that is not personal to you. Go back to basics. No one's better at the basics. Jack Kirby is the king of basics. The tilted camera, you know, the upshot, the low angle worm's eye view to make things more dramatic, the aerial eagle's eye view, the bird's eye view to give you more of an information dump. High up, you can get the positioning of people more on. Moving the camera in, close ups on the face, you know, when. Cap springs into action, the camera's slightly tilted. It's not a straight-on shot. All of these basics, no one excelled at them more than Jack Kirby. He is the playbook for storytelling, the essential playbook for story for storytelling. He is how to draw comics the Marvel way. He may not have drawn the beautiful how to draw comic books the Marvel way, which John Buscema did, but John Buscema doesn't exist and tell stories the way he does without following Jack Kirby's blueprints and jack is invoked several times by john in that book he uses jack's pages jack's uh storytelling devices because jack is so good at telling stories he he does it with an economy he never wastes a panel he doesn't over overburden the panel he just knows exactly what you need to get your eye to go here 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 click all the way through and so after he is dancing with captain america and black panther again we have the eternals come into being and then Devil Dinosaur. Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy. He tells you a prehistoric tale. And I, you know, I don't, nobody pits that to him. That's Jack, them saying, Jack, what do you want to do? I've got a, a dinosaur story I, I, I want to do with Moon Boy and, 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 and a giant scarlet Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay. That's what Devil Dinosaur is. And they tear up the prehistoric times with different tribes and battles and monsters. And it was kind of like Jack Kirby's version of kind of Godzilla. But it was a blast. I never missed an issue. From 2001, Jack had created an android named X-51. And he spun X-51 off into a comic book called Machine Man. And Machine Man, I'm sorry if you haven't heard it. I'm sure Machine Man will make it to the uh, Marvel small screen on Disney Plus or big screen in the near future. But he was my favorite Jack Kirby creation since OMAC. His eyes bulged out as binoculars. His arms could stretch out with these different coils or pop off 
his roller skates would pop out of the bottom of his shoe. He could make his entire body, half of it, into a tractor and, and, and go over rough terrain. There was nothing Machine Man. He was literally a Transformer in 1978 before Transformers would arrive by many, many years. And I, oh my gosh, I, 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 I wrote fan fiction about Machine Man for, my, for one of my fictional uh, book reports or um, one of my my writing assignments in junior high, I wrote an entire story about Machine Man because he just captivated me. He was by far my favorite Jack Kirby character at Marvel. And Jack did eight, nine, ten issues of Machine Man. Uh, again, all these bursts of amazing creativity. Machine Man operated on the same level as Captain America Splash Page, double splash page. Uh, there was a big bad alien menace that Machine Man battled for about four different issues. Um, he would battle the military who wanted to hunt him down because he was different. Eventually they had him battle the Hulk. He did not, Jack Kirby did not draw those issues, but Machine Man had a uh, a fan following and carried through even when Jack was done with Machine Man. He started popping up in the Hulk. He started popping up in Marvel Team Up. Um, he was depicted on covers by Frank Miller. I mean, Machine Man was an amazing creation. Again, all written, drawn by Jack. Jack's new thing for, since DC Comics was, nobody writes for me, I write for myself. I am the guy who is controlling the dynamic of every page. When I saw Kevin Feige at San Diego Comic-Con last year, I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but it needs to be implemented here. I uh, was talking to Kevin after the Eternals presentation. I told him how much I was looking forward to the Eternals. And, and, and he said, why? Why is that, Rob? Kevin literally put his hand on my shoulder. Why? Why is that? And I said, because it's all Jack. It's pure Jack. It's written, drawn, created, you know, imagined, illustrated. Uh, it only exists because of Jack. Every word, every picture is Jack. There's no Stan. And Kevin said, I know. I just wish, you know, like Stan, he had, he had lived to see some of this come to life. And, uh, you know, I, I hope the Eternals delivers. It is very unique in design and concept. From the Celestials to the Eternals, Icarus, all of it. Uh, I really hope that they stick the landing with Eternals. It's a big, big, tall order. I know that Marvel has delivered on so many fronts, but uh, very, very interested to see even a frame of this. I know they've kept it very um, concealed, and we haven't seen it yet. As I make this recording, there's been nothing visual other than the costume designs that they rolled out at D23 when I was there, and I saw that with the, with the, with the, with the, uh, with the public. I'm very excited to see it. It is pure Jack Kirby, pure Jack Kirby imagination. Just, you don't understand. The man who gave you the Avengers and the X-Men, visually completely different. Then gives you, you know, the Fantastic Four, completely different. Doctor Doom, Kang the Conqueror, Atuma, you know, uh, th this, this Red Skull. Jack Kirby is one of the most, no, th there's, there's no one. I, I said he doesn't, he doesn't have an equal. I shouldn't say one of the most. He has no equal. He is the most gifted visual visualist I have ever encountered in my life. There is no one on par with him. And and to have so many individual looks and characters, and then to go and do the New Gods and Forever People and Mr. Miracle and Big Barter and Commandy and Omac, and then come and do uh, Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur. Continue Stanley, Stanley Kubrick's vision on 2001. This is, these are, these are amazing feats. And he did it what what seemed to be effortlessly. And so Jack did these six, seven different titles 
from 1975 to late 78, early 79, and he exited the stage for animation. Jack said animation just provided so much more um, uh, wealth for his family. It paid him better. And royalties hadn't really kicked in, so Jack wasn't making a percentage of sales. That wouldn't kick in until the mid-80s with Jim Shooter at the helm. You know, had Jack maybe stayed around, he would have seen more of the fruits of his labor because the comic book industry that I uh, was hired into, the comic book industry that I exist in today, is the comic book industry that Jack Kirby built. Now, he didn't do it alone. Obviously, nobody does anything alone. John Romita Sr. contributed. Obviously, Steve Ditko is the other titan that I stand alongside Jack because Spider-Man is so loaded, as I've said many times, the best rogues gallery in the history of comic books. Green Goblin, Doc Ock, Electro, Craven, um, the Vulture. I mean, right there we could stop and go, those are the most perfect, perfect villains. Um, alongside the creepy way that Spider-Man was depicted. Then Steve Ditko walks over, does Doctor Strange, and gives you Baron Mordo, Nightmare, Dormammu, Right there, you can just mic drop it and go, this guy, Steve Ditko, and then stand him alongside Jack Kirby, where you get the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, the X-Men, Hulk. And it's 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 this enormous visual template that these two gentlemen provided. And then other people, like John Romita Sr., would come in, originally being asked to emulate Steve Ditko by Stan Lee because he wanted the fans to have a transition from Steve Ditko to, to John Romita Sr. So for the first several issues, John Romita Sr. was drawing in a Steve Ditko-esque style kind of the first who would the first on that level on that scale that would be asked to kind of emulate a predecessor to to ease the reader in stan knew what he was doing stan is definitely a contributor he's he, he's his name's on the books he and jack have had a long standing fallout over who did what silver surfer galactus i mean jack kirby claims that he was asked to create a guy with a, uh, a surfboard and jack created the mythos, the vision, the cosmic elements, Galactus. And look, that's a he said, he said between those two gentlemen, they are both past this earth. They did not uh, mend fences before they were gone in terms of some of their very deep ideological rifts in, in regards to how, uh, how Jack felt he was slighted and he was on record many times. This is not news uh, that, that I'm breaking here. Jack felt slighted by Marvel for a great period of time. He also resented much of the spotlight that was given to Stan. Had he lived, someone who knew Jack, someone who broke bread with Jack, someone who attended functions with Jack, saw how Jack operated on a convention floor, I am telling you, as that person, Jack would have been in front of the cameras and the cameras would have loved him. Jack talked more like this. It's a very, very commanding, but, but, a, but a very persuasive nature. And he was cute. He was, especially in his older years, with his silver, big pile of silver hair, gelled back, and uh, and his and his he was, he was he was always fit, very fit, like a like a you know he he was very fit. He was diminutive. He was you know a short man, and I'm not a tall man, so believe me when I tell you that if I'm towering over Jack Kirby, this is not a tall man. But he and Roz made the most appealing couple. They were so um, worshipped by the comics industry and the people in the industry always had a natural uh, just bend toward Jack. He, I was at uh, a, a birthday party for his in, in San Diego in 19, you know, I want to say 86, 87. And it was a surprise party on the rooftop uh, of, the, of, of one of the hotels in San Diego. And I was fortunate enough to be 
be part of the invitation and be there and witness this. And Jack was so gentle and so touched and talked to everyone there and was so excited to be talking to people. And that is after, obviously, he is in a different stage at that period of his life. He is almost in semi-retirement. Almost. But from Marvel and Black Panther and Captain America and Machine Man in 2001 and the Eternals and Devil Dinosaur, he segues to animation. He leaves comics briefly. He comes back in the early 80s, 1982. He announces he is going to do, and you need to know this, Captain Victory. Captain Victory is one of my, I keep telling you it's one of my favorites, but they're all, each one builds on the next. Captain Victory is the launch title for a brand new comic book line called Pacific Comics, which is, in my mind, the first big independent comic company I'm going to interact with. I see the ads and the fanzines. I see uh, the advertisements in the comic book newspaper that I subscribe to. The posters were in the stores. This was an independent comic. The king of comics was launching his own incredible story, and it was Captain Victory and the Space Rangers, and it was a story of a boy who had left Earth with on, on an alien ship and was coming back to, to take on the hive, which was in, embedded into Earth. It was a little bit of the invasion of body snatchers if it was an out-and-out action movie. Um, there were all these amazing visuals, this mythology, this great uh, crew, kind of, it was Star Trek meets Star Wars meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers meets Captain America. I mean, Captain Victory is in blue and red and gold, and it's it's brilliant. It, I, I, couldn't, I cannot tell you how much I loved it. And the first issue is inked by his longtime embellisher, Mike Royer, and it is a beautiful, beautiful comic book. And it exploded, and he did it for the better part of the next year and a half. Captain Victory, he also brought out Silver Star, these new characters that he was launching. It was Jack all over again, 100% pure Jack Kirby, pure imagination. He owned it himself. And so as a fan, I am re-engaged to 70s all over again. It's 1982, and Jack Kirby is back with brand new comics from a brand new comic publisher called Pacific Comics, this giant independent comic label that would later sign Neil Adams, that would later sign Mike Grell, who was a big DC talent, who had done a book called The Warlord. He was doing a book called Star Slayer uh, for, for, for Pacific Comics. I mean, Dave Stevens, uh, you know, rest in peace, bless his soul, amazing illustrator, launched The Rocketeer from Pacific Comics. Pacific Comics has some serious, serious street kit cred. They were kind of the Image Comics before Image Comics. These giant names that you loved that did work for Marvel and DC were now doing work for themselves under the Pacific Comics banner. So that is kind of the last hurrah for Jack in the Bronze Age as I understood him. He uh, came back briefly to do the Superpowers comic book line in 1985 for DC. It, it was the first time visually that the work felt like he was a little off in terms of he was older he wasn't drawing the same. That 70s work, I maintain, you can grab it, whether it was 1975, 1976, 1977, 78, 79, it all looked the same. Even the 82 Captain Victory work looked like the 70s work, which looked like the 60s work. It was refined. That 70s stuff is my favorite Jack stuff. Like I said, he knew how he wanted to tell the stories. The splashes, the double-page splashes, the tempo with the stories. It was the way he, he hit you in the face. Here's a splash page. Here's a double-page splash. Punching you in the face, grab, grabbing you, engaging you. Action, adventure, imagination, technology like you've never seen. Jack becomes an elder statesman. He is celebrated all across the comics universe. He also does a Silver Surfer standalone graphic novel that is uh, 
uh, a paperback book sold in bookstores, and I got mine in the library and wore it out. Uh, Silver Surfer, standalone, brilliant story. It has a painted cover by Bob Larkin. It is this came out at that same time. Jack was so productive. But I am breaking into comics in the 80s. 87, I start working in comic books. I'm out of high school for one year. I get hired. I am producing comics. I am on the convention circuit. Now I am sitting in the sections where the artists are, where somebody like a Jack Kirby is. And this is in 1988, 1989, L.A. Comic Con. Uh, one of the promoters had come to town and put on a Comic Con at the L.A. Convention Center. And Jack Kirby was one of the guests. I was one of the guests. And the man who created Hellboy, Mike Mignola, was one of the guests. And they tell me that they have me penciled in to be on a panel with Jack the King Kirby. And if you want to talk about like like bedwetting, I think I wet the bed right there in broad daylight at two o'clock in the afternoon on the floor of the LA Comic Con. What 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 what? I'm going to be on a on a panel with Jack Kirby? Does he know? Oh yeah, he's looking forward to it. And uh, just uh, wow, I, I I don't know what to do. I, I'm I'm drawing like X Men and X Factor, waiting for my my new mutants to to happen my New Mutants gig to, to open up for me. Um, but I've been at Marvel for about a year. I, I, Hawk and Dove is behind me, but I just don't feel like I'm up to being on the same stage. But Jack wanted other comic professionals who are attending the show to be on stage with him. So it was myself, Jack Kirby, and Mike Mignola. I'm going to tell you, Mike on the left side, Jack, uh, myself on the right side of Jack. We mostly just watched Jack talk, but at one point, and, and rightfully so, right? Because, I mean, what are we going to add? Um, at one point, somebody asked Jack what he thought something unique and special, you know, what he what he's proudest of about comic books. And Jack grabbed that microphone, very spry, very just capable. And he's got to be in his 70s. Says, uh, you know, the thing I love about comic books is that I'm not limited by, by the budget of like a Hollywood movie. I have an unlimited budget with my eraser and my pencil, and whatever I decide to put on the page. If I want to blow up an entire universe, I can do it. I don't have a guy tell me that that's going to cost too much money. I can just do it. I can draw the biggest spaceship I ever wanted to draw, and I don't have any budgetary restraints. And that that's what I love about comics. The only limits to what I do is my imagination, and my imagination has no limits. And he kind of chuckled. And I remember going, I can't believe I'm on stage with this guy. And he just said, like, my my life's motto. That's I'm going to adopt that as my life's motto. The only limits are my imagination, and my imagination has no limits. Jack Kirby. The only thing holding me back is what I can put on the page, and I can put anything on the page that I want. What just... Mind blown. From then on, I think somebody asked me a polite question about Marvel or comic books. And I think I always, I turned to Jack before I spoke. You know, I must have been 20, 21. And I just say, yeah, you know, like, like what Jack Kirby said here, like what Mr. Kirby said. I would just refer to him. I, I couldn't believe I was on the same stage with him. Um, it was, it was so generous that he shared the stage with us afterwards. Roz shook my hand and said, you're a very sweet young man. <laughs> and she was so kind and so loving. So a couple years later, the career's taken off. New Mutants blows up. X-Force sells 5 million copies. It is clear that I need to take the Pacific Comics Jack Kirby Captain Victory route. Because here's the thing. The thing with X-Force 
is New Mutants was a failing book. I put in my own characters like a Jack Kirby would with the new gods and, and the forever people and the Eternals. I filled it with my own concepts, designs, names, characters. It blew up. It became the best-selling comic book. And, and, and I felt like, well, what I do next will be just a disappointment. If I go do the Fantastic Four or the Avengers, it's not going to ever be as good as this experience where I built on my own imagination, creati creativity, and, and uh, ingenuity inspired by Mr. Jack Kirby. I, I need to now go branch off like he did and start my own thing. And I informed all my peers, this is what I'm doing. I'm starting my own company. I hope you come with me. Eric Larson and Jim Valentino, we had all talked about this for years. But we eventually convinced Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and Mark Silvestri to come on board, and we were off to the races, and we made Image Comics. So Image Comics is launching the summer of 1992. I think Youngblood 2 is out around San Diego Comic-Con 1992. And during the show... Uh, same four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There was no Wednesday preview night back then, but just Thursday through Sunday. It was a Friday or Saturday afternoon. I'm wandering the floor with a couple of my guys from my studio, and we're walking up and down the different aisles. And we walk by uh, Jack Kirby's um, booth that he had, and he's sitting there with Roz. And I walk by, and I, I wave, and I, I look at some of the pages, and I, I say, how you doing, Jack? And good to see you and I just you know I very much felt in awe and and, and was overwhelmed and, and started to, to walk away and Jack stands up and the dude is in like this powder blue like leisure suit he looks so amazing we should all wear powder blue leisure suits um in his honor he just he looks so dapper he came to the shows dressed for success dressed as as like as like the great spokesman of comic books and and the elder statesman that he was and Ross follows him out. He comes out and he goes, Rob, Rob. And I pause. I'm, I'm just in awe. I'm not ready for this moment. And, and Ross says, Rob, Jack would like to say something to you. And I'm like, I'm, I'm ready. And Jack approaches me and says, uh, I just want to tell you that I, I love so much what you're doing. And, and if I was you, I'd be doing what, what, what you're doing right now. You know, the way you've you've broken off and, and you're doing your own thing. And I said, what do you mean? You did do that. You did do that thing. I'm, I'm emulating you, Jack. You did that. And he goes, I, I guess. And, and, and he was shy and, and, and he didn't know how, how to take the fact that I would just turn the tables. I mean, when God comes out to bless you, 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 you thank him. And you remind him that he's the pro provider of the blessings. That's really how it felt. And uh, and and I shook his hand and I said, Jack, you don't know how much that means to me. But again, I'm just doing what you taught me to do, sir. And then he just smiled. And then Ross said, you need to give us a call. We want to get together. Come up to the house. Come see us. I'm in Orange County. They're in Thousand Oaks. Hour drive. Let's do it. We, we put it on the books. And about a few weeks later, I am driving to Jack Kirby's Thousand Oaks Estate. And a couple guys from my studio jump in the car with me. We arrive. We arrive in the afternoon. We got there maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, Jack and Roz warmly welcome us into their beautiful home. We get to see the room where it happened. We see the brilliant uh, drawing table that is that is seen in several different pictures. You can Google it. I'll show it in my notes for this show. There it is. That's where the magic happened. That's where New Gods, and that's where Forever People, and Mr. Miracle, and Commandia, all of it. The new Captain America run, the Black Panther. This is where he did it all. And this is when he tells me why he did what he did, and how many pages a day. Why he... And it was so just 
so basic to him. I just had to provide for my family, Rob. I got, I, at the rates they were paying me, I had to do no less than three pages a day, every day. And you're just like, mad respect to this guy. Never done that. Never will do it. Not going to even try and kid myself that I could aspire with, to what this man did, what he achieved. His brilliance. Well, three o'clock turned into four o'clock, turned into five o'clock. We had dinner. We stayed till 2 a.m. in the morning. And I'm going to tell you, we were kind of, Roz and Jack were so enjoying telling stories and, and visiting with us that I just, I was like, this is ridiculous. This man clearly is an energizer bunny and he, and he can't, he won't stop. He can't stop. He's feeding off our energy, but we have to let this man go to bed. And Roz just said that he had had such a great time with us, but I want to detour because something really momentous happened that night. I had come with some money to buy some artwork. I was told by Roz that if I wanted to look at some of the books that Jack had, that he had some original art, he would be open to selling them to me. So there was a side room, a den. Clearly what was once a den had been converted into just where they are um, have all the artwork. And, and there was a bed and a, and, and a, and a dresser. And then the, the, there was a closet open with a bunch of, a, a giant dresser with all these different drawers. There were envelopes on the bed. They had probably prepared to put them out. But there were entire issues of Mr. Miracle, of New Gods, of Commandy, of OMAC. And uh, I had rifled through. I just couldn't believe I could look through this stuff. So I carefully put, pulled them out of all the envelopes. I looked through all the different 11 by 17 pages. And after each one, I'd say, oh my gosh, Roz, are you sure? Is this available? She'd say, that's available. I'd look through an issue of Mr. Miracle. I couldn't believe, oh my gosh, splash page, all the splash page, all of it. That's available. So it was this uh, amazing dance with all this artwork. And I was able to leave with several issues worth of artwork and happy to pay whatever Miss Roz Kirby asked me. One issue of the New Gods, I couldn't believe uh, they had. It was called The Gift. And it's the origin story of High Father. And it's my favorite issue of New Gods ever. And after looking at it, I said, is this available? And she went and she says, honey, Jack drew this one for me. This is about our our love, our romance, and uh, and and this is staying with me. And I was like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry I asked. I was very sheepish. But then I said, can I look in those drawers? And she's like, oh, the, 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 no issues are in there. I said, she goes, that's just that's just some some uh, some you know drawings and sketches and and some some uh, miscellaneous work that Jack's done. So I said, well, can I look through it? And so. I start rifling through these drawers and I see these fully lush penciled pages that were probably drawn in 1974, 75, 73, because she's able to immediately date them for me because it's a Bruce Lee story. Jack loved Bruce Lee and wanted to draw a Bruce Lee comic book. And so many of you in the 70s, Bruce Lee took over and became the guy who had posters on everyone's wall. He was the premier martial arts action hero, obviously icon, he died so young, but you know, all of his uh, body of work was held in the highest regard. Bruce Lee, I mean, they just did an ESPN doc on him this summer. His legend continues to thrive and live, and, 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 and just what an amazing impact. So much so that Jack Kirby decided to, on spec, draw an entire comic book of Bruce Lee. And I'm looking through this and I'm saying, I'm like, what, what is this intended for? And he had drawn 15 pages 
to submit it to the Bruce Lee estate so that he could do this Bruce Lee comic book because he just favored Bruce Lee and he wanted to make this happen. Ross said it fell through. I said, that's really interesting. And so I set, kind of set that aside. I then rifled through and I saw some other kind of just extraneous pages, miscellaneous art. And I started to compile enough of it. And I said, Roz, I have, a, I have an idea. What if we were to make a story out of this? What if we were to connect? There were action scenes. There was character bits. There was an entire, there was enough there to make several issues worth of stories if you knew how to connect the dots. And obviously, I make comic books for a living. I had made my success doing comic books at a young age. I speak fluent comic book. And I am looking at the most fluent comic book language of all time with this Jack Kirby pages, these unfinished stories and, and two or three sketches and two or three pages unfinished of different characters. And I said, may I? May I propose that we put this book, these, these pages together and make make a make a story? And and Jack had said that he changed the Bruce Lee into a character named Gin Singh. Now, I don't know how that flies in today's market. That name doesn't matter. This is something he did in the 70s that I am looking at in 1993. 1992, somewhere in 92. And it is Ginseng. And his, uh, his, um, the, it, 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 it was, it was just this amazing, amazing pencil work, the quality, the lushness. And in my mind, I said, I'm going to ask my fellow peer group, my image brethren, Jim Lee, Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane, Mark Sylvester. I knew right there. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm handing out the pages. I'm going to get these guys in the horn. I'm going to ask them all if they can contribute ink over Jack Kirby. So we'll be the new guard inking the king of comics in this brand new imagined story that we'll come up with some other name for it. And Jack said, I have a title for this called Phantom Force. Everything in there is Jack Kirby, Ginseng, Phantom Force, Phantom Force, all the villains. It's all drawn by Jack. Keith Giffen did some bridging pages emulating Jack Kirby's style as he was prone to do when he first broke in, he immediately got back into the, uh, he immediately got back into the swing of what he broke in looking like kind of a Kirby clone he was able to do for us in order to build out the pages because Jack did not draw any new pages. These are all existing 1970s art. But we are able to create two issues worth of Phantom Force. And I called up Todd McFarlane. Todd, would you, bud, send them my way. Everybody got two pages. Mark Silvestri, Scott Williams, Jim Lee, myself, Eric Larson. I wanted to ink the whole thing. I knew I couldn't. And that would diminish the speciality of it. I called up Jerry Ordway. I called up other great inkers in the business. And I said, would you want to contribute to this? And they all jumped in. Next thing you know, we solicited it. It's called Phantom Force. This unpublished Bruce Lee spec comic that Jack did so that the Bruce Lee estate would grant him the license. I mean, that's what this guy does. So, so you and I, the, the, my peers, we draw one or two pages and we try and go sell a TV show off of it. No, Jack goes, I'm going to draw an entire 17, 15 page comic book and then go, Mr. Lee, would I, could I, you know, the, to the estate, to the, to the wife, to the, you know, to the estate, could I do this? You know, Jack just did things otherworldly. He put way more effort into, into it than you or I would or could. And, and so it was a great pleasure to scheme right there. It's just me and Roz in that den. There's nobody else because we're making, we're doing a transaction. I've got cash. I'm buying pages. It pivots to this. What's in these drawers? What can we do with what's in these drawers? It was magic. It was, it was like finding like, like uh, an unreleased, like short film by Steven Spielberg 
or or an un unfinished film by Quentin Tarantino or Martin Scorsese. You're like, what is this? We have to get this out into the world. This can't die in this drawer. And uh, the great thing is we were able to give Jack his words, not mine, his words. Jack was, um, Jack and Ross said, this is the most money we've ever made from a comic book. It was a uh, very much mid-six-figure check, and it was a pleasure to deliver that to the Kirby's. Uh, none of us got paid. We contributed our love to the work. We didn't. We were doing. I mean, Youngblood at this point is selling a million copies a month. X Force launched at five million. I'm still getting royalties on that to this day. Those books sold a gajillion copies. We didn't need to do work for money. We didn't need to get paid for doing Jack's work. We all approached those pages. I found my very crisp 11 by 17 Xerox pages of the whole job the other day. I was looking at Todd's inks on him, Jim's inks on him, Mark Silvestri's inks on him, Eric's inks on him, my own inks, and just reliving the magic of what that felt like. And believe you me, when I dipped my quill into my bottle of India ink before I applied the first stroke on that page, I was like, oh boy, this is, this is like momentous. I'm about to ink over God. And I want to end this story by... Around five o'clock, right before dinner, he took us on a tour in his Thousand Oaks estate, and we walked the halls. And there was artwork that I'd never seen before in my entire life. I, I've never seen it published in all the fanzines and all the news articles and all the art of books. This is original Jack Kirby art. That night, he told us amazing tales of World War II stories of naked Nazis jumping into foxholes with them, stuff that I just don't have time to expand on now because I've spent so much time talking about comic books, but the artwork. We come across this giant, I'm talking, to, it's movie poster size, original, a movie poster, original size, whatever those dimensions, but I'm looking at the movie posters in my office, and in this frame, this drawing is this big. It is a giant face with a bearded man, and the hair is swirling all over with the Kirby crackle, and it kind of looks like it could be Odin, the father of Thor, or maybe High Father from the New Gods. And we are, the four or five of us are crowded around Jack, and he's in his diminutive, he's standing proud, but he's diminutive, he's in front of us, he's outstretching his hand, presenting us this beautiful black and white art hanging on his wall in the hallway. I said, Jack, Jack, what is this? And he goes, oh, that's God. That, 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 that's God. And that was it. There was no, no expanding on it. That is God. That's God. And I swear to you, I'm like, holy crap, Jack Kirby has seen the face of God. And that's what he looks like. And oh my gosh, I cannot believe I am in Jack Kirby's house. He drew God. And you're, you're talking, I'm a Baptist minister's son at that time. I'm for my whole life. My, I'm, I'm the son of a Baptist minister. Again, my dad indulged all my comic book and sci-fi fantasies. God bless him. But I'm sitting there going, holy shnikes. I know what God looks like because Jack Kirby rendered it. Now let's move along down to the other Few, few feet more down the hallway and there's this giant more uh of a landscape uh dimensions La big landscape drawn another illustration in the foreground there's this armored figure and his armored hands and and armored gloved fingers are like pressing on these like computer uh machinery buttons across this giant control board and down below down below in the cliff below is is this kind of fortress that's crumbling. And there's this kind of celestial army on the cliffs that are like poised to attack. And I'm like, what giant space saga is this? And I'm like, this is amazing. Again, in the foreground to the right of the picture, 
taking up the lower quarter of the page is this armored, amazing character, which is on this technologically advanced keyboard. And there's these cliffs and the celestial army. And then down below, this fortress is kind of crumbling and there's smoke and debris and energy coming from it. And I said, Jack, what is this? This is amazing. I've never seen this. And he goes, oh, that's, that's Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. That, that's, that's Jericho uh, falling and, and that's the organ playing, playing the music that, that crumbles the walls of Jericho. And I, like, honestly, the night could have ended right there. I felt, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what the Battle of Jericho looked like. And, and, and I just felt like Jack had an otherworldly vision. And at that moment, between the picture of God and the picture of the Battle of Jericho, I was like, I am in the presence of greatness in, in the way that I have never experienced before or after. I have been graced to have been in the presence of great, great men, great geniuses, great artists, none of them have ever influenced, inspired, touched me the way Jack Kirby did. Phantom Force was our love letter to Jack. I'm so glad that Image Comics published it. I'm so glad that I was able to be the creative point person. I'm so glad that we could repay Jack for all that he'd given us. I'm so glad that I was able to dine with Jack, not just once, not just twice, many times. I was glad that I was able to share a floor with him, even though I was not ready for prime time. But this is about Jack Kirby, his greatness, his body of work. There is no bad Jack Kirby comic. Uh, you can check them all out. I, I implore you, find his Captain Americas. Find his 1977 Black Panthers. Find that Eternals run. G engage with it before the movie comes. Familiarize yourself with this man's work. He is the greatest that ever did it. There is no comic book artist greater. There never will be. And uh, it was such a pleasure to uh, engage with you today on, on Jack the King of Comics, Kirby. There's a reason they called him the king. He wore the crown and nobody else could touch him. And uh, I just implore you, check out his work. Check out the 100 issues of Fantastic Four he did. I, short sh I, I, I didn't mean to short shrift that. It's just it came out before me. But when I stood in front of those 100 issues, 101 issues, and, 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 and inhaled them, they changed me as a storyteller. They changed me in my approach to comic books. If you want to see me fully engage with Kirby, Youngblood 2, 3, and 4 is me at my most Jack Kirby. It is me at my most inspired trying to apply the energy and the techniques of his storytelling and the power uh, that he brought to every page. But it is time to wrap this up. Thank you for sharing this time and discussing Jack. He drew God. He drew the Battle of Jericho. I will never forget it. I love the man. Uh, that His contributions cannot be overstated. I am on social media. I'd love for you to talk to me. You always reach out. You tell me about each episode. At Robert Liefeld is where I am at Twitter. At Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Blue check marks by both names to disseminate from the phony accounts that try and fool you. At Robert Liefeld at Twitter. At Instagram. At Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Uh, I'm all over social media. Come check, check me out. Say hi. I have snake eyes. Dead Game, my new G.I. Joe comic. I always forget to tell you guys what I'm working on. It's out now. Find it. I, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening to Rob's Observations. We will back, be back again very soon with another walk down comic book highway, comic book lane, comic book road. Take care of yourself. Be safe. We will talk soon.